Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, Danny? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I can't complain. I am speaking with you, right? Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, speaking of speaking, uh, I think there's a correction that we have to make for uh, the last episode. Uh, just a little bit, a little squirmy bit that you uh, that you made. Do you remember what I'm talking about here? I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, we're, we're talking about Teutonic plants. So in our last episode here, so Henry is famous for, for butchering some words and phrases sometimes, like how things are, are uh, pronounced. Uh, and we, I think we've come up with probably the, the culminating you know, word <laughs> that I would love to just start putting on like bro history merch or something like that. Teutonic plants. Teutonic plants. Now he meant to say tectonic plates uh, when we were referencing the geographic, you know, um, the geography of Japan. And oh man, that one, I I, ne- I had to mute myself temporarily because I, I nearly, <laughs> I nearly like spit out my water. Um, yeah, that was hilarious. I've even on our Patreon channel, I even, uh, um, uh, made a mock-up of a, of a Teutonic knight riding, uh, you know, the piranha plant from um, <laughs> from Super Mario Brothers. Uh, it's yeah. What do you have to say for yourself, man? Well, at least I didn't refer to us or refer to our our audience as bro historians. All right, all right. So Whatever. Danny wants. <laughs> I may mispronounce everything, and I really do. I'm terrible at pronunciation, and it's not just difficult words it's easy words as well um i'm i'm bad at that um (laughs) yet i still do a podcast so it proves that anyone can do this um but one time we were in an interview with um with uh zoltan um (laughs) zoltan Zoltan istvar yeah zoltan what's zoltan's last name istvan istvan who Mm -hmm. was uh is a nat geo uh an ex nat geo writer um big transhumanist uh running for president Brand and president. Um, he's like can you t-? danny was like hey can you uh tell all our bro historians like you know who you are and what we're doing and i was just like <laughs> bro historians hey i was trying to make it a thing <laughs> bro historians clearly it didn't stick with you my bad <laughs> it sounds it sounds like something that would come out of the marketing department at like Hanes or something. <laughs> Dude wipes. Bros. Bro historians. What's up, bro historians? Come be- join me for a six pack. Um, <laughs> all right, all right. Fair enough. Uh, we both uh, fuck things up. <laughs> all right. Well, um, what we're doing today is that we're continuing our series on Japan. And this is part of. I don't want to say part two because then it gives the impression that you can't listen to this on its own. And I guess we're trying to go, um, we're trying to make these episodes so that you can listen to them on your own, but they're also part of a larger series, which may be impossible as far as I know. I think it is impossible, but who knows? We're going to try to attempt this and go into this uncharted territory anyway. But this is the. We're, we're trying to explain the creation of the modern-day Japanese nation-state, and we're doing this by diving deep into the past and starting with ancient Japan on through classical Japan to feudal Japan to, show, to Tokugawa Japan to um, imperial Japan, all those Japan, all, the all those different forms of Japan. And we're trying to explore how that nation-state was made. So we're coming in this 
almost in doubt with not a preconceived um, theory or hypothesis. Um, this is a learning experience that we think that it would be fun for other people to join us on. And last episode, we mainly focused on early Japanese civilization. Um, we spoke about the first migrations of people of, of Japan. So the Jomon and the Yayoi mm-hmm. people, um, mm-hmm. the influence of, of the Asian mainland on early Japanese culture, and then the uh, development of the first political institution, specifically the Yamato kingdom. So today we're going to be talking about the transition from this early civilization to classical Japan, to, to ancient Japan in, in, their, in their court system, um, and, and set up how feudalism became um, you know, the, um, the main system for about a six, uh, 700 year period. Yep. Yep, definitely. And, and just a, some some specifics of the recap this way, you know, just you don't feel like, you know, you missed anything in case this is the first episode you're jumping on. A um, couple of things to know from interesting points from the last episode here. Nobody really knows where to start, you know, to pinpoint the, the, the start of humans in Japan. Uh, it could be anywhere from 500,000 to 30,000 years ago. Um, obviously, huge, huge spread. Um, I think the general agreement is that people walked over to Japan through a land bridge, and I always love the opportunity to say the word land bridge on this episode because Henry hates it. Um, at least that's the I correct, hate the word land the bridge when it, it. <laughs> when it means road because some yeah. people use the word land bridge just to refer to the word road in like right. a modern context. They'll be like, oh, <laughs> we need to block the land bridge from Lebanon to Damascus. You mean like a highway that goes there? <laughs> no, the, a land the bridge. <laughs> yeah. It makes it, it's people just trying to sound uh, like they're playing chess. <laughs> so the land bridge, but in the in the context of like a literal a bridge, uh, land bridge that was made, made, of made land. to connect <laughs> yeah. a island to the mainland continent, mm-hmm. I think that is an acceptable use of the term. Right. Um, so kind of moving along a little bit there, uh, it's it's um, one of the important points that we discussed about learning about the ancient Japanese is that it's super tough, super hard to you know know anything uh, with certainty because a lot of the ancient burial grounds and lands there are still coded as like either natural preserves or like they're owned wholly by the emperor today and you can't dig them up. Um, so there's still a ton of mystery and a bunch of myths surrounding Neolithic Japanese history. But that's actually what makes it kind of interesting. We dive into, or we, I dive <laughs> very specifically into a bunch of conspiracy theories about like aliens and shit uh, surrounding it, which is probably all bullshit, but, um, you know, it was fun to think about. Uh, and then we talked about the Jomon people. I know Henry brought that up again as well. Uh, so they're a pretty diverse set of people. Uh, their genetic makeup, you know, has backgrounds, uh, you know, and, and connections to different Asian groups, including, you know, Mongols and Chinese and Koreans and South Asians. Uh, later, uh, when we're talking about the Yayoi invasion, uh, it was a mass migration event uh, that happened over several uh, decades, um, actually maybe hundreds of years. I forget the exact numbers again. You'll have to listen to the old episode again. Um, and uh, this, this kind of describes this, this giant um, you know, ethnic migration o- over into Japan uh, that was you know, made of people that were lighter and taller and, you know, that brought a bunch of new technology over to, you know, uh, Japan, like bronze and rice and things like that. Uh, And it also set up how the Yayoi people um, were primarily dominating the south and southwest areas of Japan, whereas the old Jomon people tended to stay towards the north and the northeast. Uh, and what's kind of important to know about the Yayoi period is that it marked that transition out of the Neolithic period and into a period of recorded history, specifically, you know, when the Chinese started writing down things about this land of Wa or the land of dwarves out there that had a hundred warring kingdoms uh, and that was totally batshit crazy. <laughs> uh, and that's how they referred to uh, Japan. Uh, in those in those histories, but uh, it was really a shift from prehistory to history. You know, huge leaps forward we saw from hunting and gathering to cultivation, from stone tools to metal tools. You know, we saw fixed settlements spring up. We saw social hierarchies being developed. It was basically the makings of 
uh, you know, a state, if you will, like the real, like, you know, embryonic state, if you will. And now today we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what, what happened after that immediate, you know, uh, proto state in the Yamato period, uh, that saw like a pretty big expansion of population and, you know, what came as a result of it was this, uh, court system and this feud, uh, well, not, not feudal, I should, I should, um, change that, uh, the, this classical period in Japan, right? Um, and that's going to be the point of topic for today. And I think today's episode is going to be less about like, you know, people and, and, and places and events and more about, you know, the general theory and um, tropes that you saw from how this classical period rose and how the classical period fell and what did it fall to. Um, we're going to be focusing on um, Japanese um Agri- uh, ancient Japanese tax theory. So this is something <laughs> yeah. that uh, if that excites you. Imagine yeah. if, that's, if that's if that's something that you would bring up in a job interview. I was like, oh, so <laughs> ancient um, Japanese tax. You no, know, do you have uh, you know do you have your CPA? No, but I am. I do have knowledge on um, ancient classical Japanese uh, tax reform. I can't help you <laughs> land with <that>. tax reform. <laughs> well, I do have my. My, uh, I've read a couple of books on the uh, on the <laughs> classical court system and how uh, tax shifts uh, created the uh, the the foresight for eventual feudalism. And, uh, they'd be like, "Okay, you're hired." Um, <laughs> I promise it's not that this guy won't not, shoot up the office it, for sure, it, right? <laughs> I promise this, this is not as boring as it sounds like on the face of it. Like, yes, te- technically speaking, we are going to be covering quite a bit of like tax reform um, in, in classical Japan. But actually what's what's interesting about it is is how I'm not gonna give it away. You'll have to listen. Just trust me on this one. It's not it's not nerdy or boring. All right. So it is extremely nerdy, but it's fine. Not boring. <laughs> it's so um you if you by definition if you're interested in this, you are a dork. Sorry. We're dorks. <laughs> if you are interested in this, you are a dork. Just face it. Um so something I discovered um is that Japanese historians, especially in the early 20th century, don't look at this period in a favorable view. In a favorable view. Right. Um, not all. The ones that I've read in the late 19th, early 20th century, and the reason why I read some, I, I like to read books and documents and journals from, from um, previous times to get a sense of what other people are thinking from different cultures and different time periods. And it's really fun. It's really entertaining to go read things from like the 19th and 20th century um, and how they write things in the context of their time. And usually it's unapologetically racist and sexist and very, very blunt. It's very funny. But um, I have a quote from Kanachi Asakawa, who was a historian at Yale. And he was a big he was like one of the big Japanese um ambassadors to america he was like a goodwill ambassador between the u.s and america this was mm-hmm. before world war ii broke out he was a guy who really um he, he really pushed for good relationships between japan and the united states but um his interesting work and i actually read a lot in, in preparation for this series but um here's a quote the seven centuries of feudalism were preceded by about four centuries 794 to 1185 of court culture at Kyoto, the imperial capital. This culture culture was in its essential characteristics aristocratic, effeminate, and emotional. Effeminate. Its point of view was mainly aesthetic, not ethical. The denizens of the court, ladies and ladylike men, ladylike men, <laughs> Lady concerned boys. themselves not so much about the right or wrong of their conduct as about the gracefulness of their behavior. Rather than asking what ought to be said or done under a given circumstance, they inquired how to say or do things approved by common consent to be good form and pleasing. (laughs) Their culture was model. While it excelled in grace, it lacked strength and variety. Its point of contacts with the individuals were dull and void of thrill, for it hardly touched his capacity for strenuous effort or self-denying enthusiasm. If you picture in your mind the French court life under the old regime, he's meaning Louis the Sixteenth, 
you will have produced a likely replica of the court culture of the Kyoto of the 10th century. Sick burn, Nasakawa. So what he's saying, and, and I think that's a really good analogy, and it's an analogy mm-hmm. that I've, I've constantly seen up. Classical Japanese court culture was very similar to the court culture in, in France, in Louis. And the main similarities is that um, when Louis XVI was in power before the French Revolution, that was actually a high watermark for like French culture and French philosophy. This classical Japanese period was a high watermark for art, for um, Japan developing its own unique culture with its own language and own and own uh, own writing style and own system, own kind of uh, their own unique architecture uh, and poem and literature and things like that. But at the same time, there was a massive, massive disconnect between the aristocrats who lived in Kyoto, the capital at the time, and the rural, the rest of the country. They were very, very uh, fancy. Um, they didn't have but, nearly enough pinkies to hold up when they drank their tea. Exactly. Not nearly enough pinkies. Um, but to... So uh, let's go back to the theme of their relationship with China. Or so they had a a very um, kind of big brother, little brother relationship with China. Um, they a lot of their aspects of, from their culture were developed from China um, between the years five hundred and eight hundred. Japan was heavily, heavily influenced by the Tang Dynasty. Mm-hmm. So they adopted uh, the Chinese systems of government, technology, writing systems, religion, etc. Lots. And stuff. we're going to go deeper into this. Into a actually, this is going to take. We're going to do a Patreon episode on this very topic to get more into the specifics because this can take an hour, and we're going to lose track about China's influence on Japan. So we're actually going to post this in our Patreon if you want to learn more. But to sum this up, Japan bases government off of Tang China, a very strong centralized government. But there came a point where Japan was no longer a primitive culture. Mm-hmm. You know, they were reaching a state of culture maturity that was ready to develop on its own line. And what accelerated this process was that the Tang Dynasty was falling apart by the 800s. Um, there was a major rebellion around 860 AD. Um, and then for the next 100 years, China is ran by a bunch of warlords, mm-hmm. which is a common theme in China. We explore that a lot in our yeah. episodes on China. So, and um, if, civil- if civilizations were like stock markets, China was in a slope at this period. And then the following dynasties after the Tang Dynasty, they didn't, you know, have enough. They did not have the same amount of prestige as far as military prestige or um, just territory, territorial integrity. Um, they had actually a lot of um, developments in like science and art and stuff like that. But as far as landmass, the following dynasties were not as big. Yeah, their geopolitical um, strength was was very much weakened. And, and frankly, the Japanese. China, to the Japanese, China lost a lot of its appeal. Right. So, Wasn't in the eight hundreds, in the eight hundreds, Japan just stopped sending their um, missions to China anymore. Underneath the guise of "Hey, it's too dangerous. We can't send these people because they're at war this period. There's pirates off the coast of China. Um, it's just a civilization that is um, falling apart. So they stopped sending people there." And the greatest sign of the divergence between Japan and China is that around this time, Japan started developing their own writing system. Mm-hmm. Um, previously, the Japanese, if they said something and wanted to record it, you'd have to write it down in Chinese. Right. And what makes that a huge pain in the ass is that the Chinese alphabet is not phonetic. So being literate required the brutal process of memorizing thousands of characters. Well, I mean, you still have to do that today with modern uh, Japanese and Chinese and and many other languages. So 
while it is brutal for someone who was not previously literate in that language, if you're brought up in, in the court, I think it was kind of second nature. Well, in Japan, though, the language that they created, um, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on languages, but hmm. Chinese is not. They're all sight. It's all by sight and memorization. I think there's a little bit more of a phonetic com- component to a Japanese character. 100%. Yeah, I mean, I'm studying it too. So the, they developed kana um, and uh, hiragana uh, thereafter, which were still character-based, but they were phonetic characters, right? And and But they still use kanji, uh, which are the Chinese characters. And there's still hundreds of thousands of them. I, I don't actually know the, the full amount, but there's thousands and thousands of them. Uh, and they kind of use them in tandem with one another, where... The kanji or the the, the Chinese looking characters <clears throat> are useful is you know in in place names and in names and uh, in a lot of different um, uh, uh, context contextual stuff. But uh, anything and everything can be written in kana or uh, hiragana, um, and those are the the phonetic versions. And I think uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more. But um, how how they started diverging away from China. Part of that was, you know, getting away from using their system and using a system that was more suited to their language, right? So translating, transliterating their, is that the correct word? I might not be using that word correctly. Uh, the, the word I'm looking for is a word to describe uh, going from uh, uh, the sounds uh, of your language to, you know, uh, to, to symbols representing the sounds of your of your language rather than symbols representing words. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, that was a that was a long-winded statement. <laughs> no, I don't I'm really bad with like with other languages, so um it's it, it's beyond me that you could use like three different alphabets for any uh, within your writing system. Um, I yeah, it's it's a it's it. it's a tough language for someone who isn't <clears throat> you know born into it. I think for for Japanese people, that's just second nature, and for children, it's easy because children are sponges for language. Uh, like our brains are hardwired to do it. Um, but uh, to that point, though, uh, like if you were raised in the court, it was super easy for you to learn all these Chinese characters. And it was just like part of the, you know, part of the the, the boredom of like court life. They just straight up, you know, like do calligraphy or something fun, you know, and and that was just an easy way for them to learn it. But, you know, for like your your generic like rural people or even like your your feudal lords that were just trying to communicate, you know, on paper that it might have been harder for them. Well, let's talk about like the early um the early woes of the classical state. Sure, sure. Um, well, I think, you know, while, while it's true that, that this early, like, medieval period saw some pretty big expansions and innovations and in art, um, it wasn't totally all, like, sunshine and flowers and shit. So the majority of the, the common people there suffered quite a bit um, under many of the Japanese ruling class of the time. Uh, in particular, there was a lot of poverty, uh, famine, Definitely a whole lot of overtaxation, which we'll we'll talk about at length. Um, but all those things were like a huge, huge burden uh, for the common Japanese person. Uh, one big issue uh, that I'd I'd love to um, jump into is the land allotment system. 
Uh, and uh, since the Taika uh, reforms, the great change reforms uh, that came out in 645, so just before this period that we're covering, there was this established and honestly pretty progressive uh, precedent of awarding land to people. Uh, so every every everyone was given a land allotment every six years, and even women were given land allowances, uh, public land allowances, which is quite a departure from the Chinese system, which only was extremely patriarchal in that sense. Um, but but I, I know that you had a, a few a few things to, to to point out about that, Henry. Well, the fact that that this backwater country because japan was still the backwater like right. it was its most eastern place in the world um well at the time at least china's <laughs> new zealand <laughs> yeah at the time for these people um it, it's the fact that they were able to uh, replicate china's political system is really hard to believe and it, it's a complicated subject so i i have a another uh quote from a another older historian, Edwin Reicher, who was an ambassador to Japan and wrote a bunch of books in the 70s and 80s. So this is an older book. Um, But nevertheless, it was, honestly, I think it might be the best, like, good general history book of Japan I've read. Um, A slow erosion of the tax lands and financial base of the central government had set in already during the 8th century. From the start, the capital and provincial aristocrat- aristocracy had retained the bulk of their lands as tax-free states under the classif- classification of rank, office, or special merit fields. And these rich families were the people best able to expand their holdings through opening new fields. Mm-hmm. They also were so situated in the government as to be most capable of increasing their tax-free privileges or even winning the right to have estates made immune to government inspection. So, what this means is that they're messing with the tax codes. So the people would, in the court, in the in the court system, you know, they would get in with the court and they would make tax law. Basically, it's a lot like how our our government works, like how lobbyists will um, basically write bills. Mm-hmm. Or how politicians just, you know, they create policy to favor their friends or favor the favor their donors. Mm-hmm. That's what was going on with this government, um, like many other governments. Uh, cronyism. So these people were messing, messing with the tax code. Um, between the 9th and 12th centuries, much of the agriculture land was gradually transformed from tax-paying public domain into private agriculture estates called shones. A shown is a, f- um, I'm not reading from this anymore. Um, a shown is a feudal holding, but in reality, it's just a way to farm out tax exemptions. And the main point is that the growth of the shown undermined the central government's ability to collect tax revenue and therefore redistribute that land. Sorry, so I'm reading again from this. Often made up of scattered tracts of rice fields, these estates were sometimes owned by powerful provincial families, but more commonly by the great court families in major Buddhist and Shinto institutions of the capital region. The estate system was quite complex. Right to income from the estates called shiki were divided among a whole hierarchy of persons or institutions. At the bottom was the actual cultivator, with his family workers and hired hands. Above him was the controller of the state, usually a family of local prominence acting in theory theory, merely as a manager for the proprietor, would be a protector, some even more powerful families of religious institutions. The system of multiple incomes from a single piece of land is reminiscent of conditions in medieval Europe, even those areas that were not turned into private estates, but remained part of the public domain and under the control of the provincial governments took on many of the characteristics of the estates. Appointments of, of, as governors of certain provinces became hereditary rights of particular families, and they assigned the functions of local control over these lands to aristocratic 
provincial families, often on semi-hereditary basis. Thus, the control of income from these lands were privatized in much the same way as those of the estates. The net result of this was a steady loss of income and functions on the part of the central government. The elaborate Chinese-style central government had progressively less to do, and as a result, increasing emphasis was placed in the ceremonial aspects of the government. Although the effectiveness of the central government is gradually atrophied and a number of noble families and religious institutions become its multiple successors as the real controllers of the land, Japan's insular, insularity saved it from foreign conquest and the usurpation uh, as might have occurred under comparable conditions in China. Let's unpack that a bit because I think there's a, there's a lot going on there. Um, and I, and I, I want to bring it like down to the ground a little bit uh, and give you kind of paint a picture for you. So, so we're talking about these feudal holdings and we're talking about land distribution. And, you know, previously I also was talking about the, uh, the awarding of, of federal lands, right? So public lands were being given uh, and granted to people and those lands uh, were often uh, taxed pretty heavily, right? So if you, if you worked, uh, if you um, were uh, awarded some land and you worked that land, you were due some taxes to the federal government. Um, but what was interesting about this was a kind of supply and demand issue. Uh, so there wasn't enough suitable land to distribute and keep up the, this, this system for forever because they had such a huge growing population. And it was basically like a classical, you know, socialist overextension of welfare but it didn't need to be that way so like a big problem uh was that uh the agricultural technology of the day sucked in japan so much so that they weren't able to clear uh you know land efficiently uh and you know even even um land that was already previously cleared to make rice patties and stuff like that often went under maintained and just basically went to waste uh and you know Typical government, you know, can't do shit, right? So they couldn't keep up with their own land management. And they were also taxing the land that was in use pretty heavily. Uh, and that went on common people's shoulders. Um, and, and one thing that I think is important that that uh, that you pointed out in these quotes is is the, the relationship that the religious institutions played into this. Because in our last episode, we were talking about how the expansion in Buddhism... Uh, in Japan was basically seen as as a useful tool to help unite people under one ideology, but you know to expand its influence requires Buddhist temples, lots of them. So in particular, there's this one emperor. Uh, his name is Emperor Shomu. He was between 724 and 749. Uh, he was super into creating uh, and expanding uh, Buddhism. Um, he was he was actually responsible for this um, really huge. Uh, a building called the Todaiji Building, Todaiji Building. Uh, it's actually the largest wooden building in the world, which is pretty interesting. Um, and it's got a giant Buddhist uh, Buddha Buddha statue in it. Um, so he created that, but he also uh, had the bright idea to put temples in every single province. Uh, and all of these state-sponsored temples and places of worship came at a big price tag, which all of these commoners we're footing the bill for um so shomu's buddhist kick he i think it's it's not entirely clear but a lot of people seem to uh, believe that uh it was inspired by uh like this giant smallpox epidemic that um that happened prior um so this, this epidemic actually killed off almost a third of their population at the time um so that might be some like divine um the realization that he had, he's like, oh, kind of like coming to Jesus moment, coming to Buddha. Um, but, you know, what he did was he created some taxation reforms during the time to help the peasant class and and then instituted a bunch of new policies. Uh, and one of these policies uh, allowed peasants who cleared land for themselves to keep that land. And if they cleared it many times, they were not going to tax them for it. They wouldn't tax you for that land. So it was like kind of a double whammy, right? We had this this uh, lack of land and we had, that was a problem. And uh, we had an, just poor management of land. So they out, they outsourced it to the people. Um, 
And so this started showing us like a a shift from state land ownership to private land ownership in Japan. Um, but all these reforms and policies, they really didn't help the majority of the peasants who were still way, way, way overtaxed uh, by local religious institutions and also local landowning nobility. All this is to say that it caused a, like just a shit ton of migration within Japan uh, of the peasant class. And, and this was because of the incentives, right? There was these tax-friendly, like privately owned estates uh, that were elsewhere outside of uh, public lands that you can go to to live and work. Uh, unfortunately, those people got robbed blind by those landowners too. Um, but this migration from the state-owned and taxed lands to private-owned and untaxed lands was really the beginning of the decline, I think, for the court system and, and the power that the courts had uh, in that centralized imperial authority. And this kind of brings us to the what was called the high-end period, um, so the high-end period uh, is like 794 to 1185. I don't know if you mentioned that already or not. I'm going to say it again. Um, the high-end period was, was basically marked by the movement of the capital from Nara uh, to high-end, which is present-day Kyoto. Um, and Emperor Kamu at the time, uh, he's the dude who moved it. No one really knows why he actually changed the, the theory. The th you know what the theory is? What? Um, there, was, there was too much of a Buddhist influence there, so he was trying to escape it. Yeah. That's yeah. the speculating theory, but nobody knows. Yeah. But um, I've read that like a bunch of different times. Everyone's like, he must have wanted to get away from the Buddhist influence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th th that's that's a fair but point we'll because they were know. getting pretty strong. You know, like but these Buddhists, you know, they, they weren't like like you know, peace monks and stuff like that. Like they they had like they have like conscripted armies and shit. <laughs> you know, like they had warriors and they had real strong sway over over government affairs. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a pushover like religion. You know, no, it wasn't system. like the hippies that are like, I'm Buddhist now. Like, hey, like no. what you know, what religion do you practice? Oh, I am actually a Buddhist. Uh, no, no offense like to, that. to practicing Buddhists, of course, but you know, the, these guys were like like legit powerhouse players, like yeah, like, like evangelical Christians in in the U.S. Here, you they, know? Were like it's, they were in, they were an institution, right? Right. And, and uh, another theory that I read actually was that he thought that the land was cursed because of so many disasters that happened, like the smallpox epidemic, but also like, you know, earthquakes and shit. Um, or he might have just been bored. I don't know. No, nobody really knows. Um, but the point is that he, he moved the capital to high end, and that's why we call it the high end period. But this is the capital that stuck because prior to this, they bounced the capital around probably like 100 times or some shit like that. Uh, I don't actually remember the exact number, but they moved the capital. It's, it's something that it's not even worth figuring out unless you're a very hardcore Japanese historian. But right. yeah, whenever an emperor would die, they would they would raise the capital to wherever his estate was. Right. So imagine if every single president of the United States, instead of like them moving to the White House, the White House just became like wherever, wherever they were from. Wherever it was that they were. Scranton, yeah. Pennsylvania would be capital <laughs> of the United States. I'm just a kid from Scranton. Scranton. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> Mar-a-Lago? No. No. I don't know. You know, Real so... so in Arkansas. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, but. so, so uh, they moved the capital. This one stuck. Uh, this one lasted uh, more than 1,000 years, actually. Um, so what's important about the high-end period, uh, there's a general overview here, is that we see two really critical things happening. We see the growth and the ultimate decline of the court system, and we see the growth of the strength of the private land ownership. So let's talk about the, the court system for a bit. You can see where this is going, though, right? I, I, everyone listening to this, you can see where the seeds of feudalism are growing at this mm -hmm. period with mm -hmm. the decline of the central powers and the growth in power in private land ownership. And we'll get to eventually, you know, they, the uh, decrease in power uh, within the central government will be a, will mean a de will be a further reliance on these power players in the rural areas to supply men-at-arms. But I just want to kind of give you a sense of where we're going with this. Right. So so this this court system. So we, 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 um, 
we kind of poked fun at it a little earlier, especially with especially with quotes that I had, especially you know some of the bits about it being super effeminate and like you know silly. Um, but actually, the high end period saw some of the best art, literature, and cultural works being created in all of Japanese history. So whenever you think of like a book or a painting or some poetry or, or some some style of theater uh, of Japan, y- you name it, it's probably coming from this particular period. Um, I thought a lot of that was from the Tokugawa period. So there's a there's a lot that comes out of the high end period, like a lot, a lot. Um, and the interesting thing about this is is that the reason why so much of this art and and uh, early art and and writing and culture that comes out uh, is because of just how crazy disconnected from reality the court system was. So th- these great works mostly were created from members of the imperial court or their families or like, you know, the ancillary vassals and things like that. And during this period of artistic expansion, we start to see uh, a lot of these elites pull farther and farther away from their core responsibilities of, you know, governing and just started messing around and doing fun stuff instead. Um, Just, yeah, sounds oddly familiar for today. But um, here's a quote uh, that'll help with this. this is from uh, A History of Japan from Stone Age to Superpower by Kenneth Henschel, which is actually a, 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 one, of, one of the primary materials that we used for the last episode as well. Um, so he writes, Six nobles, uh, excuse me, nobles of the day de- debated the merits of flowers or seashells or floated wine cups to each other along miniature waterways or composed delicate verses. Their values centered not on matters of state, but on the correct protocol, the proper costume, the perfect phrase. So basically, they we're just like, like me. They're jerking. a bunch of silly nannies. <laughs> yeah, they're just being being like silly. You know, like they weren't really paying attention to anything, but like what was fun or like what was you know proper. I, I don't even know the correct set of adjectives to utilize for this because on the one hand, it was it feels like they were just sitting around like you know, for lack of a better word, just like circle jerking each other or. You know, but at the same time, there it was also like a kind of like a political thing. You know, it was super weird. It's kind of hard to describe. Um, it but was. I, I think it's important to to discuss this because this happens in almost every government, in every nation, in every country. There is always this elite culture that is developed within the elite of that country, and I hate using the word elite because elite. Um, Elite makes it seem like these people are superior. Um, right. You know, they're just born into the right family. Right. Um, it's all circumstantial. But this is yeah. this is a group of about twenty thousand people. Right. Japan like at this time has a pop- five million or something like that. Yeah. Has a has a population of five million people. It may not seem like a lot, but for the fifth, sixth, seventh century, eighth century, that is a lot of people. Five yep. million people. Yep. They give you a, a comparison. China at this time probably has somewhere around 50 million or so. Don't quote mm-hmm. me on that. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I've read from a couple different sources that right. it's like 50, 60 million people. But that's all of, course, of China. Nobody knows. <laughs> you know? That's all of China. And China is huge, it's right. big. China's right. big and populated wow. and it doesn't, it's not, they have mountains, but it's not covered. With mountains like Japan is, where everyone has to live in these like you know four population zones. Right, there's a lot of more territory. Um, Japan, on the other hand, is is highly populated at this time for its landmass. But um, before I lose my point, um, in the, in the beginning, I, I mentioned that there was very similar to. French court culture with the powdered wigs Mm -hmm. and the let them eat cake type attitude where there was such a massive disconnect between the people who are um, wealthy and in power and then the common person on the street. And you even see that today right now. There Mm -hmm. is absolutely we have absolutely nothing in common with with Nancy Pelosi or nothing (laughs) in common with <laughs> the political in, in nothing in general. yeah so all right let's put it this way we have way more in common uh, like an average democrat and an average republican have way more in common than either of them have in common with um nancy pelosi and 
Mitch McConnell. Um, Dan Crenshaw or someone <laughs> like that. You know, yeah. like these people are on a different level of uh, they live a different lifestyle. And I think there's a, you know, we, we see that today, even with like Hollywood celebrities. Yeah. Um, like Lady Gaga just paid like a $500,000 ransom to get her French bulldogs back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I heard about Is that Lady that. Gaga. Yeah, that was Lady Gaga. But I think you, you pointed out the correct word, and I think is power. Right? For the people in power. Because a lot of times what happens is there is this culture that establish, establishes with the people in power. And I'm going to use that with like light air quotes. There's this just like, you know, set of unspoken rules and regulations and, and customs that they have. And so when you want to secure power for yourselves, you want to bring yourself closer to the people in power. So if you are a minor lord in Japan or a landowner in, you know, France, you're going to go to the court and you're going to try and adopt their 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 proceedings, right? So you're going to dress the same way they do. You're going to speak the same way they do in the hopes that you can get closer to the seat of power for yourself. And that's and that's distinctly different. Uh, and probably the cause of their of the demises here uh, from where the actual like real power lies, no quotes. Uh, and that's and that's with who actually on the ground governs and and rules and and directs and leads the people and the and and the land. So there is a huge difference between those two, like the air quotes power and power. And to since we're talking about ultimately the nation state, to create a nation state, it requires the exportation of that culture to millions of people within a defined um, territory. Mm-hmm. So, in the case of Japan, being the four major islands, um, this there's no attempt to do that here. There's not an attempt to export this court culture to the peasants right it's just like siloed in this small area with a limited number of people when now the difference between something like you know a court system like this and then the rise of nation states that you see in the in the 17th uh 18th 19th century there is a clear process of people using people trying to export culture and usually it does come from the elites of society even though i hate using that word but the powerful of that society the culture settler setters of that society they're creating a culture to export to the masses to the peasants to eliminate local customs and to unite everyone over under one uh, defined culture with its own with its languages and mythology and you know, all this stuff that makes people a people. The difference is between a period like what we're talking about now and 700, 800s Japan. This is more like we're in like the year 800 somewhere, right? Right. The difference right. is that there's no mass communication at this time. <laughs> right. There's no so spread. there's no ability to spread this court culture to anywhere outside of Kyoto. You just, this is just something that you, uh, you know that you uh also it's just do like, with your... like if we're being honest it just wasn't pragmatic either right like people were more concerned with like how to well, say this is something. rich culture too yeah Sorry. it's like rich people I, I, culture you know it's this like is rich they, they were more this concerned with culture. how they spoke than than what they actually got done um and, and so that that was strikingly different different than what happened on the ground like in in the actual like country uh and and this kind of brings me to the the growth of the private land ownership because lizard people culture. Lizard people culture. L- lizard people culture. Mm-hmm. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, 
and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. So, so private land ownership, <laughs> different from a lizard people culture, because I think at the same time that this was happening, there was also this deadly cycle being propagated outside, right? And, and this is kind of getting back to that land tax bit. So earlier we mentioned all the, the reforms uh, that were put into place to help stimulate the economy, provide tax relief for some peasants, uh, and ultimately just like grow. And, and we mentioned that the problem that the state was having was a lack of land to grow some crops and produce on. So they placed a whole lot of incentives to get people to clear the land themselves. And as a result, they wouldn't need to pay taxes on um, much of that land. So this created to start this this created the start uh, of the cycle that grew the power of privately owned land uh, that ultimately led to the demise of the court system. So by the 10th century, uh, the practice of public land allotment, that's when the government decides, hey, you get a land, you get a land, you get a land, right? Um, you get a car, that, you get a car, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that Oprah-style land allotment, that was over by the 10th century because part, part of it is because they ran out and also part of it is because um, you know private land ownership had increased. Um, and by the end of the high-end period, uh, just before like the, the, the Warring States period, Almost half of all of the land was privately owned. And what's important to remember about that is that land taxation was the only form of taxation at the time. So decrease in the proportion of taxable public land means a decrease in the revenue stream of the central imperial government. They ain't got no money. Also important to understand is how that tax-free incentive of clearing the land worked against the in, the interests of the imperial government. So on the one hand, I think it was super handy and important to get people to, you know, to outsource the process of clearing land so that we can grow more crop and, you know, grow the economy. Uh, however, uh, on the other hand, offering this tax incentive, you know, to say that, you know, these private citizens could basically, you know, uh, uh, get their own tax-free land was you know pragmatically didn't work out you know to like spread out to all of the 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 peasantry this was pretty much just propagating a system where you know wealthy private citizens can get super rich and poor just continue to get poor um so so here's a here's an example picture this pretend you're a peasant farmer and you are living in you know uh classical japan and you work on a publicly allotted plot of land, right? You got your little, you know, half acre or whatever it is, right? And, you know, up until this point, you've probably suffered pretty greatly under imperial taxation. You know, they're, they're, they're bleeding you dry. You know, you got kids to feed. You got so much to deal with. And then there's, on top of that, there's also like natural disasters, like you know, tsunamis and shit. Uh, and there's also some man-made disasters. And there's like... Um, you know, smallpox, <laughs> there's a bunch of shit that's happening. So life isn't great right now. Suddenly, you hear that if you go to some less developed neighboring province and you put in the work, the backbreaking work of clearing that land to make a rice paddy, you can own that land outright. And you don't have to pay any taxes. Sound like a good deal, right, Henry? Yeah, for a peasant, it would be a good deal. Well, yeah, I think initially for most of them it was, but it, it doesn't stay that way forever. Let's pretend that, you know, you cleared, you, you spent the time, you, you cleared out your little patch of land. Now you got your own patch of land and, and it's tax-free now and you're living the good life and you're starting to grow your crops. And, you know, let's say a, a group of bandits decide to steal your crops just whenever they want. They're just going to come up and pluck your shit. And obviously you can't, stand guard to protect your crop all day and all night right and you probably also don't have the means to hire some private security because you're a peasant so what do you do uh maybe one day uh, a wealthier neighboring landowner 
decides to offer you a deal. And the deal is this. He goes, I'll buy your land uh, and you know, uh, you can actually continue to live there and work there uh, under my employment. And for a small fee, I promise to provide ample security. You can grow as much crop as you like. You'll be much happier. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's better than, you know, the, the federal government land that you were on before. And you accept probably reluctantly, but you accept anyway, because what other option do you have, right? You can't protect your own land that way. So later, this wealthy landowner repeats this exact same process with other small landowners, just like you. And he goes through this process of collecting more and more land and more and more wealth. And now this landowner has under his control acres and acres of land and probably hundreds of peasants and hired security. And now he has the means to start clearing more land all by himself. So he can now skip the process of purchasing land from people and just go ahead and clear out, you know, acres and acres of land just for himself. Uh, and all he needs to do is spend a little bit of money on tools and cheap labor to do it. And in his greed and his lust for more and more power, he starts collecting more and more security fees from everyone that he that he you know employs. And this growth keeps going unchecked until ultimately it's more than what the central government was collecting in the first place. So I think you can see what's going on here. Yeah. So the local powers uh, became the regional powers became way more powerful than the actual central government. Exactly, because they're getting all the money and they're creating this like juggernaut where and now they're they're sending, uh, you know, their people to lobby, you know, and <laughs> mess with the tax code, just like we were talking about earlier, you know, uh, and, and make it so that they don't have to inspect the land anymore, you know. And like, what are you going to do? I've got, you know, 500 samurai ready to like protect my land. This is my land. This is private land. I cleared it. I own it. You know? Yeah. And um, you can see, you can see this trend um, starting with the tax, with the crony taxation. Like going back to the court system well let's actually pull this back a little bit because i think it's well i think it's worth mentioning the disconnect between the rural japan and the court system again um we already talked about this but what's interesting is that there's really not many record there's not much recorded history about rural japan because no one was really writing. <laughs> no one's writing. There's not really these court documents. Um, we do know about the the rural elite that linked the land to the countryside with the capital, mm -hmm. but the people, the elite in the um, these were like lesser nobility. You right. know what I mean? Um, should we go into the into like kind of like the the early rise of the shogunate or well I, I think i got like one more bit here for the divide of the the um uh the court system and the okay you know the the local land ownership because what one interesting part and we can even we can even include this with our example here is that uh you know the the decline of the court system was both internal and externally driven so internally we had this decrease in revenues from taxation you know, we had, uh, you know, growing detachment of the court from reality, frankly, um, and, you know, a lot of the power, um, you know, going to land ownership. Uh, externally, we had some other issues, and that was that we had this 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 process of absentee land ownership. So what, what that is, is where, you know, this guy that we we're talking about, the guy that, you know, bought up all the land, now he was doing this to, you know, gain power and, and and things like that and, and now that he's got a little bit of money and he's and he's got some influence he's going to go over to kyoto and what is he going to do he's going <laughs> to he's going to adopt the same you know silly frivolous you know court culture that that all those folks there have right because he want he doesn't want to be known as like the you know the the hillbilly guy right he wants to be known as like the wealthy powerful landowner guy right and so He's going to spend most of his time 
at, at court. Most of the year he's going to spend there. And he's just going to appoint somebody, some, some you know, upstart. Maybe it was somebody in his family. Maybe it's just somebody he trusts, right, uh, to run his land for him. And those were like these uh, uh, appointed estate managers. And, you know, what's funny about it is that as some of these people were coming up and gaining power, they start abdicating their power in favor of going to the court systems. And the people who, you know, truly maintained the power were the folks that were out in the country working the land, you know, because it, it started creating these, you know, pockets of um, decentralized power and influence um, among these private landowners. And specifically, and not to jump too ahead, because I know that we want to kind of talk about this in, in a future episode, but the widespread hiring of samurai happens at this point. Because remember, uh, you know, these private lands have to be protected somehow, right? We're not we're not being protected by the empire or like by some conscripted army, which I actually I don't even think that they had a they they totally didn't have a conscripted or or a standing army. Um, it was just like local militias. Uh, so we, we needed all these people to, to protect the lands. And those were the samurai. Uh, so the real center of power was who had the most muscle, <laughs> who had the most samurai, you know? Who was the military power at that time? Exactly. Yeah, you're right. They At that point, Japan, the, the court, there was no standing army anymore. And when you think about it, they never really needed a standing army the size of China. No, Japan already has. Like Japan already has so many natural barriers for protection. Mm-hmm. So the island, the fact that crossing this island will, you're likely to get killed by a tsunami like the Mongolians. Mm-hmm. Not likely, but you know it happens. I mean, there's a chance if you're well, they got hit by a typhoon to Japan. Still. What's that? They got hit by a typhoon, but still. Uh, a typhoon. Chances are there's a huge risk in sending an armada from the Asian mainland to Japan just because there's a lot of ships and weather can get real bad. Um, and even if you make it over, then it's like, ah, shit, now you're on Japan and it's like rugged terrain. It's like mostly mountainous, as we were saying. So hopping from one pocket of like, you know, population to the next is going to be hard. Plus, all of them know the their terrain better than you do, and they're just gonna do straight up guerrilla warfare on you. You're you're not gonna make it very far. It's just not gonna work. It, it sounds like a Vietnam disaster. Yeah, that's why Japan was only invaded once in its history, right? By the U.S. after firebombing it for four years. Mm-hmm. But um, to give you a sense of like where the 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 word samurai kind of comes up. It, the samurai were just, they were called uh, gento before. Mm. And they, I don't want to dive into this too much because I know we plan on doing this in a future episode. Um, like the the actual like birth of the shogunate system. Mm-hmm. But just to give you kind of a, a an idea of where the samurai come from, it's, it's um, when... There was no record of anything that was going on in these rural areas. Right. Um, and, of course, there were um, when, let's just say if someone wasn't paying taxes and there was someone was taken to court um, by, like, a policeman, the records started being taken, like, later on. And that's where we get, like, our records of the first, like, actual samurai from them being from their actual police activity being recorded within the shogunate courts mm-hmm. but i mean they always were kind of there you know what i mean like there were active fighters and military men well, they were there to suppress rebellion too you know when yeah. people were getting pissed off by this over taxation they needed to do something to put down the you know the insurrection and that's where the samurai came in um all right i think we should end on that note <laughs> um all right thanks guys thanks for joining us for another episode of bro history um it really does mean a lot that you guys continue to give us your attention and your time um every week it's uh it it means a lot so if you want to support the show um first you can rate and review the podcast 
If you're on Apple, just go to the top right-hand corner where you see the stars, press the five-star review, write a review, say, hey, you guys are awesome, um, or hey, you guys suck. We obviously prefer saying, hey, you guys are awesome, um, but go ahead and do that. Um, and then you can also support us on our Patreon account. Um, we're going to be releasing um, extra content on there related to the Japanese subject. We're going to be doing a episode on Chinese influence on Japan exclusive to Patreon, um, which will be one of many kind of supplementary episodes that we put to uh, that we put on the Patreon that will um, go with the theme, you know, usually things that we didn't have time to talk about. So join us on that um, to uh, to get that episode. Um, you can get an RSS feed and plug it into your eye, you know, whatever uh, podcast catcher that you use. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm rambling on. I always suck at ending <laughs> ending these things. Do you have anything to add? No, man, I'm, I'm just super excited to talk about Samurai next time. This is going to be fun. Me too. Me too, Danny. Me too. All right. Peace, guys. See ya. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.